Working Class Audio is made possible by the support of Cali Audio, DistroKid, Sampley Audio, Audio Technica, Gearspace, and Grace Design. This is the Working Class Audio Podcast, Session 327. Working Class Audio, navigating the world of recording with a working class perspective. Here's your host, Matt Boudreaux. Thanks, Chuck. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to the Working Class Audio Podcast. This is session 327 you're listening to. My guest today is Grammy-winning producer, engineer, and mixer Trina Shoemaker. Trina has worked with Cheryl Crow, Tanya Tucker, the Indigo Girls, Pearl Jam, Patty Griffin, and many, 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 many others. Trina comes to us by way of former WCA guest and friend of the show, Andrew Sheps, who helped make the introduction. And we have a great discussion that I think you're going to enjoy. So, Trina Shoemaker, coming up here on the Working Class Audio Podcast. Grab your coffee cups, friends. Let's talk about lack of work. I recently was talking to an old friend who hadn't worked in almost nine months. He's a damn good engineer, also a really great tech. But his audio world came to a stop when COVID hit, and bit by bit, the work just just dried up. Now, while he's not starving, thanks to his employed wife, he is starting to go a little crazy and feel a little bit down, a little bit depressed. And I think you would all agree his situation is probably not unique. There are many audio pros out of work during this pandemic, as I know you are well aware. But allow me to share with you some of the ideas for possible work that I shared with my friend. The number one thing that I can recommend for bringing in income right now during the pandemic is podcast editing, mixing, and consulting. A recent study released by Triton Digital and Edison Research shows that in the United States alone, the number of people listening to podcasts will reach around 116 million in 2021 or by the end of 2021. People and companies are creating record numbers of shows. The thing we as audio professionals know is that the majority of those shows need our help so bad. Many of these shows have horrific sounding audio, but where you get that work will depend on your job hunting and networking skills. Pay attention to LinkedIn, Indeed, Simply Hired uh, for possible job listings, but more importantly, let people know you are searching for that kind of work because odds are you probably know someone who knows someone that needs your skills, and will pay for those skills as an audio professional to help their podcast. Now, here's a question for you. What other activity across the world that utilizes audio needs our help? The answer, my friends, of course, is worship sound. Churches, mosques, temples, and wherever else people go to pray need audio to reach the congregation, right? Many houses of worship really struggled to take their message online when the pandemic hit, and they still need help in many cases. So you might say, well, Matt, we're deep in this pandemic. Haven't those jobs been filled already? And my answer is possibly, but you know what? People need extra help. People need a break. They're possibly overworked in some of these jobs where they could be the only person involved. And quite honestly, they need a professional's knowledge. Volunteers may have many of these positions. However, with a resume like many of you have, it doesn't hurt to try. 
Research the houses of worship in your area. You might be surprised that many will hire. Some will hire one full-timer with the skills who can then be aided by volunteers. Lastly, there is corporate audio work. Many corporations these days are no longer hiring outsiders to handle their audio and visual needs. So instead, what they're doing is they're building small yet well-equipped studios in-house. So many of these jobs will come, of course, with competitive rates of pay, uh, 401k plans. So you might have to make video a part of your skill set, but that's a small price to pay for solid work that will put food on the table. And sorry, video people, that's, that's not meant to be an insult. It's just, you know, we audio people, we know audio. Video is going to, you know, that's going to be something we might have to work on a little bit. Uh, in, in conclusion, I just want to say that, you know, I know that many of you might be, you know, live front of house or monitor engineers. You might be mixing or mastering engineers or even location sound people. Your pre-COVID job might be where your heart is. And the idea of pivoting to do one of these other jobs might seem beneath you uh, or worse, soul crushing. Uh, there is a potential identity crisis unfolding as you consider what I've laid out here. I understand that. I get it. I'm empathetic. However, the key thing to remember here is these job ideas can also just be temporary. This doesn't have to be for the rest of your life, but it addresses the current need right now. The bright side of this, which I, I strongly encourage you to see, is that you could take your audio skills and apply them to a different discipline and survive. This is not me saying, go get a telemarketing job which as a young man, I actually had, I worked for Time Life Books. That was absolutely horrible, I hated it. But this is audio in another form instead. And you never know, you never know who you're gonna meet. Uh, you never know what new doors could open as a result. And worst case, you do it and then you quit. And when the world opens up again, right? Either way, if you are in a tough spot, my heart goes out to you. Keep an open mind to these ideas and don't lose faith in yourself. We audio folks, we're, we're a scrappy bunch, right? And we know how to find our way. So that's my rant. Thanks for listening. That's it. Let's get to it. Trina Shoemaker here on the Working Class Audio Podcast. Trina, welcome to the podcast. Hello. Nice to meet you. I just want to jump right on in and... Talk about where you grew up, which is in uh, Joliet, Illinois, which is 45 minutes southwest of Chicago, and talk to you about your upbringing. Well, yes, Joliet is a small but old town outside of Chicago, and there wasn't any music business there. It wasn't, there was a radio station, but the music business was simply record stores and the radio and whoever was lucky enough to go up to Chicago to get to see a show which we started to do quite young. We would go up on the train because there were commuter trains. So there was always a safe way to get home as long as, you know, you didn't miss. The last train was at like two in the morning. So it wasn't, you could very rarely get stuck in the city. And I listened to records like everybody in our generation, but I listened to them with almost an indecent amount of a focus on what was going on in my headphones to the exclusion of everything else around me. I just listened. And so you'd think, why didn't I become an audiologist? Why didn't I hmm. become you know, some other aspect of, of that kind of like childhood focus? Or why didn't I become an artist, you know, a musician? That would be the obvious thing. But I, instead, I just wanted to know how the records got made and where. And I was fascinated by it. Importantly, 
Records also were the soothing balm of insecurity. I, I definitely was that weird, insecure kid. So I, I realized very young that if you had a, a favorite part of a record, not just a favorite song, but a, pav- a favorite transition, mm-hmm. something that happened that you loved so much, you just put the needle back and it would happen again and that it would never let you down. So that in the, in the records, in the music, you could actually hang your emotional hopes even if you had to make them quite small, that every time I listen back to that particular Paul McCartney and Wings Over America transition from rock show into a uh, jet, <laughs> it will happen I can hear to it. me, on me. And even as a kid, the timing that they somehow fathomed and executed, like it excites me just to think about that specific transition on Wings Over America. It left me breathless. And I was like eight, so I'm little, right? Mm -hmm. So why is this turning me on so much? Something that I really only experienced in my dad's headphones and how to chase that down. Because obviously I wasn't going to be Paul McCartney and I wasn't even going to be a musician. So I was just a weird little reclusive kid with, you know, a lot of ticks. Did you, (laughs) did you play in school band at all? Yeah, I did. I mean, of course, had I chosen music to be my, my path, I'll just say this because I'm old and nobody really cares. I would have been a brilliant musician because I'm fastidious and inspired. And like, I I, I get so inside of whatever aspect of music is upon me that, you know, I'd have been a bass player, but that wasn't my path. I played in the band flute and I marched with the tenor drum Hmm. because I was big and tall and I had rhythm. So the band directors like put her on a tenor drum. (laughs) That's cool. I understand you you would go to see shows uh, like Tony Orlando or Jackson 5. Yeah. Isn't that crazy? I actually somehow convinced my mother and my aunt to take me up to Chicago. See, again, we had proximity to a very big city that you could go on trains. So um, it wasn't that extraordinary. It wasn't like I was in Black Oak, Arkansas or something. You had to really travel far to see a big show. But yeah, Tony Orlando was rolling in and I, I think I might have been six or seven max and I pitched a fit and I got to go. So I got to see Tony Orlando. And then not long after that, at nine years old at the Mill Run Theater, I saw the Jackson 5 wow. for the Dancing Machine tour. I actually Googled that several months ago for a project I'm working on. I just needed to recall some history more specifically. Uh-huh. I mean, there's no way that I am misremembering being brought to Chicago to the Mill Run Theater to see Jackson 5. Yet no member of my family there's vague memory like, yeah, we think your mom brought you up there. My folks were divorced. You know, in other words, so, but I was like, well, it happened. And I know it happened. So I, you know, I Googled and made sure. Yeah. And it turns out that during that exact year of my life, of course, Jackson 5 did a five show run at the Mill Run Theater. I was like, I was there. I was there. I mean, I, I remember <laughs> it. Right. Yeah. But it's a kid trip. And I was also a trippy kid. But they had on the orange and yellow dancing machine and the stage was round. Mm. That part too, I was like, wasn't it a round stage? And sure enough, it is. It's a stage that moves so that everybody in the circular theater gets to see the Jackson 5 sweet faces, you know, as they circle around. It's amazing how early concerts in our, in our youth really stick with us as adults. Oh, yeah. I mean, everything about it. I even remember seeing people that had on laminates, but I didn't know what those were at the time, you know, like, but I definitely thought they go more places than everyone else. So perhaps that planted the seed of I want one of those or I'm not going to the show. (laughs) I won't go unless I have one. I don't want to meet the band, but I do want access to the bathroom. That's right. (laughs) 
When did the act of recording come onto your radar as something that you thought, I want to do that? The act of recording, the, the knowledge of that there were studios, studios operated with recording equipment, they were entities. So the act of recording as a, a fact, you know, as a kid, I understood that pretty early on because there were pictures and, and records and you could see studio shots of bands and studios. So you're like, okay, yeah, there's a place with gear. And my dad, I, I know I mentioned this on Andrew's podcast, but he worked in a, in a control room, but it was a natural gas pipeline. But nonetheless, it was called the control room. It was underground and it had a whole bunch of analog meters. They looked like VU meters to me. Well, I, I would relate them to VU meters, but they were whatever meters, all kinds of early monitoring equipment and they're monitoring fluid, which is not that different from monitoring, you know, sound waves. And mm-hmm. so it, there was a lot of correlations that I later learned. It was an enclosed environment. People didn't just stroll through. You would need to be invited in and whatnot. So the whole affinity for gear plus music was in me, but I didn't know how that would manifest or how it really did manifest in the world. And I certainly never once saw a picture of a woman like in the studio where the men were, because if you went back through records from the 70s and the shit I was listening to, all of the engineer pictures were men. I mean, they literally had on the white suits for a, for a while, you know, like a white jacket, like lab coats. And then it was always just like the really cool, sexy 70s record producer dudes with the band in the control room. And But unless the artist was a woman, but I, like, I was in love with all of them. So I didn't think, oh, where's the women? I just thought, you know, whichever one I thought was really cute. Like the one, there was one guy who was really cute. I, whatever, you know, I was a little kid and I was, I was just like so caught up in it. So, and then I just decided, well, that's where I should try to go mm. if I can find out where it is. I've heard you mention the thing about being in the control room with your dad at the monitoring the natural gas. And I think you even might've mentioned that you slept underneath what would have been kind of a console area. Like you yes, could go absolutely, in with absolutely, yeah. And, mm-hmm. and I wonder if like the memories of that or or that experience of number one, maybe feeling safe in this controlled environment, if you will, and being with your dad brought some kind of comfort to you then that would later become a part of your life because you like being in control rooms as a kid in that spot with your dad. So later on, here you are in control. Well, it, it actually it occurred occurred to me as a eureka moment early on in my in my recording career when I was in a control room. And I I did. I sat there and thought, wait a second. Holy crap. <laughs> Dad, was it we were in the control? I mean, I had all known it all along, but the reality of how much comfort control rooms, recording control rooms that were bringing me at that point in my life. I gave myself one of those moments of, gee whiz, you love to crawl. I mean, my dad didn't put me under the console at Midwestern Gas because you know, I had nowhere else to go. It's just, I was a little kid. And if he was working midnight, sometimes we went. And sometimes my sisters went and sometimes they didn't, but I would be allowed to go like underneath their feet because there was only two guys there at night. Right. And so, and they're mostly like guys. Well, now that I'm in my fifties, I realize how young they were. They were in their early thirties. Hmm. So there's just a couple of guys, you know, monitoring the pipeline. One of them's got his, you know, like five-year-old who's crawling around underneath by their feet, goofing around. And of course I would fall asleep under there and wake up really happy. And there was a water cooler that, I don't know, everything just seemed so composed and safe. and Like a combination of safety and imagination all rolled yeah, into Yeah, completely. And, and a looseness to it all too, you know, because again, this wasn't like stuffy. These were loose kind of 70s guys with beards and they were just the night dispatchers and stuff. So <laughs> again, in hindsight, I can see that, you know, if my dad wasn't like a, a pot smoker, but 
it could have just been that that relaxed of an environment. They tell funny stories and they cuss a lot. And so for me, it was kind of rock and roll. Even there wasn't any music hanging around, except for what got played on the radio. Yeah. And they did play the radio most of the night and in the day. Anyway, yeah, I love the control room. I find that very fascinating that that happened in your childhood and then you took the path that you did. Your first city experience moving out of the house, you moved to Chicago. Is that correct? Yeah. On my 18th birthday. Wow. The very day that, um, so that I, my dad couldn't have me like hauled back home by the sheriff. Yeah. I got in a, a studio. I already had a, a job up there in a temp pool. And then I got picked up by Ogilvy and Mather advertising as you know a receptionist. It was a vast place. So they had a lot of secretaries. And I got a little studio apartment in Newtown. Now, when I think of that, I'm terrified for myself. I am so afraid for that girl, but I got through it reasonably unscathed. But now, of course, I'm a mom of a 16-year-old. If I thought of my kid moving out in two years (laughs) into an apartment in Chicago by himself, it's unthinkable. He wouldn't be able to function. Yeah. So I, I don't know if I was just smarter than him or if I've coddled my child. But I know. I worry the same because we have <laughs> we have sons similar in ages and it's and it concerns me when I look at my son. I see a lot of myself, but I think, could I see him doing what I did, leaving my hometown and moving to the big city? Yeah. I don't know. Well, I can't see him even being interested in getting his license. I mean, he is. I know. But he turned 16. On December 9th, because he's an he's a sophomore, but he's got a late birthday. I mean, I literally counted down like five, four, three, two, one, and to the DMV to get my license at 16. And he's like, yeah, we'll get it a spring break. But of course, it's a pandemic year. There's not really anywhere for him to go. Yeah. So you went from Chicago eventually to Los Angeles. Is that right? Yes. I stayed in Chicago for, it would have been nine months to a year I had worked at the ad agency for six months prior to that at 17. And I don't know how they, I guess the temp pool didn't really care if I was 18 or 17. All I know is I was working in Chicago when I was 17. And then I moved up there when I was 18. So maybe a year. And then somebody told me about these things called driveaways, which don't exist anymore, but they did. And Andrew confirmed it because he knew what I was talking about. But you basically signed up with your license. And if you had no like heinous driving record, Of course, I was only 19, so I didn't have enough time to have a heinous driving record, and I never got one. You transported a vehicle out to California on behalf of its owner. You didn't get paid, but you were given a stipend for gas, and you did have to pay for your own lodging. But you transported the vehicle out there, and that was that. Wow. weird? That is weird. I'm not making that up. Totally did it. So I drove out there. A girl from the agency, at the ad agency, she drove out there with me, but she wasn't going out for what I was going out with. She was going out to meet a family member, then she flew off to London or something. But yeah, so out out there and, and went out to California. Again, I am so afraid for her, but she did okay. Yeah. I wouldn't do it now. <laughs> <laughs> so you, you get out there and you found yourself doing temp work at Capitol. Yeah. Temp work as a person in my age, I mean, I didn't go to college, so I had no, all I had was some rattlesnake fast fingers for typing and uh, a gregarious outgoing, and I was respectful and and intelligent, but temp pools were the way to go. Because again, this was pre, there were computers, but they were just word processors at that point in my life. This is the 80s. So, and the internet, I didn't know what it was. 
it existed, but of course that was all the Usenet news groups and all that. And I wasn't part of that part of the internet. So I would always go to the temp agencies, always get chosen and then usually get moved up the list. And so Capitol Records would have been kind of a choice temp assignment, Mm -hmm. but I got one right away. And then the guy who I temped for, Kirk Malloy was his name. Holler out to Kirk Malloy. He was in the distribution company, actually, his thing called SEMA. Capital EMI, Manhattan Angel used to be like a distribution core. So and he liked me. So he hired me right away that very day, actually. <laughs> and eventually you became an alternative marketing manager? Yes, because alternative marketing didn't exist until this era. Again, this was like 87, 88, 89. Okay. That was my, the time at Capital. Actually starting at 85. Well, anyway, I'll have to look on my old Capital ID. <laughs> I started in 85. I might've started in 84. I got out there when I was 19. I was born in 1965, so y'all can do the math. (laughs) But anyway, new bands like, you know, Red Hot Chili Peppers and Grapes of Wrath and Skinny Puppy, and also bands that weren't on this label group, Jane's Addiction, Thelonious Monster. That whole era of, of music was going down. So they didn't know that marketing people didn't really, I don't think, know what to do with it. Because now it's just mainstream, but then it was very weird. And so they just made up this thing called alternative marketing, like alternative truth or alternative facts, because it was just supposed to be the same as a marketing department, but working with strange bands that nobody knew really what to do with. I haven't thought of the Grapes of Wrath in ages. I think I saw them in southern New Mexico where I grew up, but I also think I ran into them at the 930 Club in D.C. where my brother lived. That's so weird. I haven't heard anybody ever mention that band other than you. Well, that's why they were in the alternative marketing department. So they were legitimate signings. But Capital was basically, I think, having A&R that started to look at this stuff that was more non-commercial and kind of wanting to sign it, but not wanting to have to put a whole lot of effort into it and just hoping something happened. Mm. And if they got lucky and something happened, cool. But it wasn't like we had some big budget or anybody cared what I did in there. I just worked with the bands and Here's one, the Red Hot Chili Peppers Uplift Mofo Party Plan. Do you remember that record? I do. Anyway, they had they were naked on the front with like tube socks on their dicks. Uh-huh. Well, sorry, they're... No, you could say whatever you want. They're machine, whatever, they're <laughs> privates. Anyway, we came up with the skateboard campaign and like giving away skateboards that they had all signed, special made ones that just showed like on the face of it, they're, that section of the L, whatever, like cool stuff like that. So I got that through marketing and they you know agreed to make 10 skateboards that radio would give away in raffles and it went over really big. So I had some good marketing ideas. Did you feel that you were biding your time there because ultimately your your desires were drifting towards recording? My desires were already in recording, but I still hadn't found my way into anything that even vaguely resembled what I knew was going. See, at that point, once I was out in LA and there were big studios everywhere, and like Capitol had one right downstairs, you would occasionally get in and you could kind of see what was going on. And I was so mesmerized by it and enthralled and enchanted. But I still had wants to be present for more than 30 seconds during a session. The door would open, you know, and you'd see in there and it would, and it would be amazing. And it was almost kind of painful because I was like, I can't get in there. But I could get into like shitty rehearsal rooms where my friends might be rehearsing their band on a old Soundcraft, you know, just like. But it wasn't, there was no big glass window. You'd just be in like rehearsal halls. You know what I'm talking about. Like yeah. More like rehearsal rooms. So, but they had little PAs. Yet still, 
there I am on the messing with the knobs. So, I mean, I knew I wanted to get in there. I just, it was so closed and it still hadn't occurred to me that 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 was going to actually happen. It was more like a fantasy. Like one day, a fantasy chick that I wasn't was the person with the thing in their lap, the autolocator. <laughs> that chick would do this and then she'd say that. It's a good thing I started a novel several years ago because I can put all this into a fiction. But anyway, yeah, I would make up fantasies that I was doing it, but I didn't really think I was going to be able to do it. So I was biding time, but I was also a, a bit resolved to the fact that my fantasies were not likely to come true. Well, you were also being told that women wouldn't be hired in the studio. Yeah, I mean, that was that the big studios, again, because there was nobody that had home studios. You either had big functioning studios or private rock and roll star studios that nobody knew about or rehearsal rooms. I mean, there was nothing in between. There wasn't like this cool little place over on X, Y, or Z because no, there were no little places. Everything had to have big tape machines and consoles. And okay, there were probably little rooms around, but mostly... It was still at the edge of record making was a process that was only done by people who were signed to labels. Mm -hmm. There were no minor labels. There were major labels that had smaller imprints. End of story. There wasn't anything that came after that. Yeah. Because who the hell else was printing up records? Nobody. It was so old school. So they, yeah, they, nobody was going to hire me to be in the studio, not at like a big label or a big studio. Was it on this part of your your journey that you were spending time at Rancho de la Luna, la Luna and Joshua Tree? Not quite, you okay. see, in a way, but it happened through a intermingling of events that I didn't know would later have a connection. Fred Drake, who built Rancho de la Luna with uh, Dave Ketching, I, I had an association with an artist on Capitol named Hugh Harris, but it wasn't really just I knew of Hugh and I knew a couple of the people that Hugh... Um, I don't remember how this went down, to tell you the truth, Matt, but I was in a rehearsal room in L.A. in Hollywood, and Fred Drake was there. Mm. And I remember it because he made fresh coffee, and he brought me a cup. And I was like, hey, man, thanks. And I'm pretty sure it was because I was there with people associated with Hugh, and I don't, I don't know the connection, but I remember meeting Fred. All right, so then the whole London thing happened. I went to London, actually did end up, having Hugh teach me how to record, got back to LA, Hugh got back to LA. Look, both of these men are passed away mm -hmm. and I loved them both dearly. So I'm just gonna speak frank. Hugh wanted weed and he's like, love, could you you know, score me some weed? You know, And again, this is back in the day when it was not as easy to score weed. It wasn't just like, you couldn't just go to the weed shop. <laughs> so I knew that Fred or Dave, one of those guys was like, has some weed, whatever. I started hanging out with Fred, who then still lived in Hollywood. He was just kind of setting up Rancho de la Luna, but he'd also just been diagnosed with AIDS. So he was like battling that. So my association with these people trickled in. But then once I was back in LA and I then I started really hanging out with Fred a lot out at the rancho. And then over the years would always go back there up until we lost him. That didn't make, yeah, that didn't make any sense, but it went down something like that. I left Los Angeles because I was sick of it. And I didn't want to be a music industry secretary anymore, so I quit. Uh -huh. I sold my furnishings, which was very, very few things. And I moved to London, where I didn't know anybody. And I lived in a cold water flat on Earl's Court for a while with Australians. Oh. And uh, I tend a bar, and I ran into a manager. A manager came in that happened to manage Hugh, which is just a 
an amazing coincidence. And he asked me what I was doing and why I wasn't at Capitol anymore. And I kind of told him I was disgruntled. I just, <laughs> I, I didn't want to be a music industry secretary. But then, of course, Tarquin's like, well, my office manager just took a long maternity leave and I have to go to the States for six months and I need someone to run my office. Would you be willing to run my office for six months? I'll pay you 2,000 pounds, which, believe me, was a shit ton of money for me at that point. At that point, for six yeah. Months. Well, for six months, though, and when you look at it, it's like, not really, but, and you could, and he said, I could live in his flat, which was luxe, you know, in his building where he had his management office, his personal residence, a rental, and then in that basement flat, he had sold to Hugh, and I didn't know that. So I started working at Tarquin's office, running the office, it was fine, and then I realized that Hugh and his band, Sam Harley and these other just beautiful guys were down there recording so I went down and I knocked on the door and I asked them, would they teach me to record? And they said, yeah. Wow. And they were really beautiful, Jamaican, a lot of dope, smoking. They left me alone. I mean, they would have, like, any one of them would have had sex with me if I had asked them to. But when I said no, they didn't pester me. Yeah. There was none of that. They had beautiful women around. I was just this weird, skinny, pimply American chick who was smart and Tarquin liked and trusted, obviously, because I was running the upstairs and I was doing stuff for them for free. So why mess with her? She cleans up after us now. She sits quietly taking notes, like being just so focused on what we're doing. And she's nice. And she's actually not, she's causing nothing but a cleaner environment. And I think they were amused by me. Yeah. But also took advantage. You know, I was their runner then. I'm sure I picked up more. I'm sure I was sent on a drug run more than once. <laughs> but yeah, you know, I've been contacted a lot about talking about sexual harassment and whatnot in the studio. But interestingly, I've been the recipient of sexual harassment in my life, but not in the studio. Hmm. Now, that doesn't mean to say that misogynism doesn't exist and that women somehow in the broad sense don't get as many big gigs or pay, whatever, that kind of thing. There's probably a broad umbrella view of sexism in the music industry. But my own little experience, I was never really messed around with in the studio. I got a lot of offers, but I guess I, I was kind of mean, not super beautiful, but like cute enough, but also mean and not aggressive. Like I didn't want to fight anybody, but if you messed with me, we were going to get, it was going to go down right there in front of everybody. Like in other words, I was scrappy street chick like that. Like, if you touch me, I will fucking fight you now, even if you hurt me. And then the police will get called and there'll be a record <laughs> of it. Do you know what I mean? Like, it's yeah. like nothing, you know, I got my ass grabbed all the time. But to me, that's not like so offensive that I really gave a shit. I was like, that guy's such a loser. Ooh, you touched my butt. Do it again. And I will maybe later, like, put a staple in your head with a stapler when I walk by. I'll mess you up for it, but I won't do it right now. So I don't know. It was weird. Then I then I would also thought maybe I just wasn't attractive to people hmm. and nobody really wanted to sexually harass me. Then I would think, well, wait a second. What about me? <laughs> <laughs> what about I, I don't want to be left out. <laughs> right. I don't know. I was so busy. I was hungry half the time. I had no car insurance. I was desperate to learn. All kinds of stuff was probably happening around me and I didn't even notice it. So eventually you left London. Did you go back to Los Angeles from London? Yes. That was very depressing because I ended up back in Capital's temp pool. Uh. But I just, I had accrued a little bit of a very small debt. After I left London, I actually hitchhiked from Amsterdam to Istanbul. Kind of did like the back in the day, 
I think it still happens somewhat now, but well, certainly not right now, but the backpacker circuits that would like be backpacking around Europe. I, I went on one of those and that was beautiful and informative and also depressing and lonely. So got back to LA, broke, needed some income. And I knew the temp pool would hire me right away and I'd get, you know, whatever, nine bucks an hour. So I started generating temp income, picking up weed for Hugh, who was back in town. But importantly, I did uh, find a little recording school in Los Angeles called the LA Recording Workshop. Mm. But at that time, all it taught, because remember, there was no Pro Tools yet. So all it taught was like how to work a patch bay, how to solder, what a dynamics processor is, how to line up a tape machine. And it was a little four-month course. And I think it cost $1,400. Hmm. So I, and it was just at like night school. You had to go twice a week. So I took the, I had to take the bus. I took the bus up to like Ventura or wherever. No, I mean like studios, whatever the one of those ones that's right above Hollywood. I can't remember. Up there, Sherman Oaks or something. And went to the little school, got my certificate to be an assistant. And then Hugh started making a record with Susan Rogers who's a woman. Susan, right, who worked with Prince, right? Yes, all right. So I didn't see Hugh a whole bunch when he got back to LA because he had a girlfriend and I don't think that, I don't know, it was just weird. I mean, he'd call me if he wanted me to maybe get him some weed or just talk for a little bit, but mostly I didn't see him. But then he called because he's like, you know, I started my record and my producer, Susan Rogers, I want you to meet her because he, he knew I still wanted to record. So I got to go down to Sunset Sound and meet Susan with Susan Studio A. And I fell in love with her. I mean, for all intents and purposes, Hugh disappeared from the face of the earth on that moment. I was like, oh, you know, and, and she talked to me, but she I only met her one time with Hugh. And she said, if you want to be an engineer, you just got to leave. You'll never happen for you here ever. So you need to go somewhere small and try to build a name for yourself. And basically, good luck. She wasn't mean. She was honest. She was a studer tech. That's how she came up. Wow. educated, college educated. Do you know what I mean? I was just some weird chick, you know, who wanted to do this thing, but I didn't come up through Studer. You know, in other words, Susan was very creative and beautiful, but she had knowledge that was so advanced compared to mine. What I didn't realize yet is I had feel for days. Like I, none of that was relative, that, that, that would become important later, but, and then I felt really bad. So I, um, I did the next week, I packed my little suitcase up with a few things I had and I moved to New Orleans. Hey, our friends over at DistroKid have created the DistroKid app for Android, which allows you to do some key things such as check your stats from Apple and Spotify, edit release metadata, upload new releases and a host of other features. And remember, WCA listeners get 30% off your first year at DistroKid. And if you just head on over to workingclassaudio.com slash WCA30, you can follow the link, get your 30% off, and be off to the races. So check our friends out at DistroKid and make sure and get your 30% off by going to workingclassaudio.com slash WCA30. About a year and a half ago, I signed up for Sampley.app, and I have to report back and say that I'm completely thrilled with it and it's working out quite well. It gives me the ability to upload mixes and masters to the website and provide a super pro looking interface for my clients. They can drop comments in the timeline. They can listen on any device. They can listen to it in high res. And if I want them to pay for the mix or master before they download it because of the Stripe integration, I can set that up. 
There's also Dropbox integration, which allows me to quickly create a folder in my Dropbox, which automatically syncs with Samply, makes it much more simple. You should check it out for yourself, but there's a deal to be had. So use the code WCA20. Go to Samply.app or Samply.app. Use the code WCA20, get 20% off, and you'll be off to the races. It's a fantastic tool that I think you're going to enjoy and will definitely make you look a lot more pro when you're delivering files to clients. Skip that whole business where you send it to them over Dropbox. That looks totally amateur at this point. Use Samply.app and use that code WCA20, and I think you're going to be really thrilled. Sampley.app. Check it out. This is interesting. In your bio, you talk about moving to New Orleans to clean. You were cleaning studios. Can you dissect that a little bit for me? Well, I didn't move there to clean studios. I moved there to see if I could become an assistant. But (laughs) so once again, taking city buses, I went to every studio that was in the phone book and asked and showed my certificate from LA Recording Workshop that I was, could be an assistant. And I went to every studio and Everybody said no to the assistant, but two places said yes that I could clean. So I was like, all right, I'm in. 150 bucks a week. I'm the cleaner. I got a job in a studio. I was overjoyed. Wow. Cleaning comes natural to me. I used to clean with my aunts when I was a teenager because they all cleaned for a living. Like they're all cleaning ladies. So I was like, I'll clean the fuck out of this studio for you. You, Sorry. (laughs) You have no idea how good I can clean. I'm a Slovak. I can clean this stuff. So I cleaned and I cleaned with a vengeance, but I also focused, you know, nobody wanted me to leave with them or go party with them or hang out with them. I was just kind of invisible, but everybody was really nice. So the guys in the bands were nice to me. The staff was usually very nice. And that gave me time to learn about the gear with no distractions that a young woman would have of, you know, wanting love. Of course I did. And like attention and to know that I would be somebody. I just threw myself so hard into learning how do you record and how do you do it right that vast swaths of my life just disappeared when other people were dating and having drama and a bunch of sex and stuff. I just was like, not. So I fell in love with the Neve boards and stuff and I made those my boyfriend and my lovers. I could rub (laughs) on them. I could do it better there. You know, it just seems so crass, but really I just loved the gear because I felt so safe and it was just my constant. So I would just put up with just about anything just so I could be around the gear and be left alone. How did you find your way to Kingsway and Daniel Anwar? Well, I was cleaning at a studio called Ultrasonic, which I don't think is there anymore. The engineer there, David Farrell, who's still a friend of mine and still a brilliant, remains a brilliant engineer. He was real good to me. Like after I was done cleaning or while I was cleaning, he would always say, come on in, let me show you some more about the patch bay. And okay, so almost like a teacher, where do we leave off? Oh, we were talking about kick drums and he became my mentor and was really good to me and taught me, allowed me to learn. Decent, beautiful man, brilliant engineer. And uh, so I'd be cleaning and, and, but David was very open and I was mopping the floor one day and Malcolm Byrne, who was a producer working at Kingsway for Dan, he came in with a dat of a Chris Whitley's record that wasn't finished yet, living with the law. So Ultrasonic had early um, sound designer too, which was a very early digital mastering. And Malcolm wanted something to happen. And, and digital was not even like considered real at Kingsway at that point. They were like, a dat, okay, yeah, there could be a dat, but everything else was just bullshit. So Malcolm wanted something and he brought it over, the dad over to give to Jay, the owner and one of the engineers at Ultrasonic. And I guess he saw me mopping the floor. (laughs) So he told the guys that 
when the dat was processed, bring it back down to the studio downtown, which was closed at really like mysterious Daniel Lanois downtown recording studio in the mansion. So they were like, Ugh. and but tell, he told them to tell me that I was the one that had to bring it back later that night when I was done. So all the guys at the studio were goofing around. You know, they were teasing me about it. So I took I, I took the dat and went downtown with it, knocked on the door and said, here's your dat. And I got to, um, they invited me in. It was spooky and weird. And, you know, right away I was like, where's the exit? Where's the exit? Like you might've just walked into a, I don't know, a weird like Canadian rape house. You don't know who these people are. <laughs> They're Canadians for God's sake. Anything could happen now. <laughs> and I'm in downtown New Orleans, right? And I'm mostly hanging out with the musicians at New Orleans, you know, not the famous record producer that came in from Canada, you know, with the fancy studio. So I have a different take on it. And I grew up different too. So that's why I would say I would be more scared of Canadians than of uh, mugging outside the studio at outside Ultrasonic on Washington Avenue. So anyway, long story short, I walked in and, and that studio, it brought me to my knees. I just, I heard Chris Wheatley. I don't know if you've ever heard that record, Living With The Law. I don't think well, so. It's phenomenal. Malcolm produced it. Chris Whitley was a his talent is just indescribable. He died. I'm very sorry. And, mm. and it was a huge loss. But I got to hear that voice coming out of those speakers that I, at the time I didn't know were Lockwood cabinets stacked too high, too high with 10-eye gold monitors, booming loud, and 15-foot ceilings. And Anne Rice was real popular right then, so it was all oh, kind of yeah. like interview with the vampire, but for real, but with Canadians. <laughs> Again, it, there was just all these non sequiturs because it was very tame. Once you got in there, there was very little, there was certainly wasn't like drug abuse or people were drinking, but there wasn't like any bad drugs. Dan and them were real healthy people in general. I'm not sure if they were emotionally healthy, but there were no scary illicit drugs. There was no cocaine or heroin or anything that would have really frightened me. It made me say, okay, people who are around this stuff are more likely to be dangerous people than people who are just drink and smoke some weed or something. So when you're a woman alone, you just got to just measure out dangers. If you do blow, you're more dangerous than a person who does not do blow, probably, not necessarily. So in that way, it felt, you know, safe. Yeah, I just might've been lucky. I, I don't know. But uh, I started making cables for Dan and cleaning. Because right away, Malcolm's like, well, you can clean here. They brought you in and said, you can, you can do some stuff here. Yeah, they said you can make cables and build patch bays in the back. Uh, so I did. So that's what I did. So you progressed there at Kingsway, and I know I'm leapfrogging a bit. Now you and Dan had some conflicts. Is is that okay to talk about that? Oh yeah, totally. Okay, can you highlight a little bit of that? What the issues were? Because I know that you you eventually had this you had this conflict, but then you would go on to work on Emmy Lou Harris's Wrecking Ball record. Well, it was during Emmy Lou's record that the largest of our conflicts transpired. Mm. And as a result, I quit Emmy's record during when was there with uh, Dan, when he brought it down to Kingsway from Nashville. And the very next day resumed working on it again because Emmy asked me to come back. But mm. after that record finished about three weeks later, I was officially no longer an employee of Dan's at Kingsway. And it stayed that way. I mean, that, that was the end of my house ship at uh, Kingsway. But I did continue to work at Kingsway because it was one of the coolest studios in town and I would just book, book it until it closed. But yeah, Dan was, I'll preface it all by saying that Dan truly in the studio is a genius. I mean, the man is 
so musical and inspired and just weird enough to have really, he has a very rich, probably a very rich imagination. I'm not going to pretend like I know what's in his imagination. He's musically proficient and inspired and just, you know, so wonderful to hear him play. So being around him in that way was never a, a challenge he was a challenging person, but I met so many more people who ended up being just as challenging. I just, it was that artist, super mercurial artist mentality that could get very hard. Like not all artists have that. Some are just kind of fun people who like to hang out and play music. And I love those guys the best. But Dan was very wealthy. And I think that probably took him by surprise. I'll say this as a 56-year-old woman who can now assess what that then 38-year-old man must have been going through because he was a young man then. Maybe he was even not even 40. Mm. And he had come into great riches and fame with U2 and Bob Dylan and Peter Gabriel. And I think he had no idea how to handle that kind of wealth and the attention that it got him because he was a pretty naturally awkward person and kind of a mad scientist. So a person even much younger with nothing, me, still would have seen him as an older titan. But here's an example of what it would be like a morning with Dan. <laughs> I'm at the kitchen table. I'm there on time. The kitchen's clean. I'm playing the lottery. I didn't do it often, but why not? Every now and then. And he would walk in and sit down very quietly across from you and stare for a little while. So then you're uncomfortable. What are you doing? Playing the lottery. Why? I don't know. Might win. What would a person like you do with that kind of money? <laughs> right? So I was like, well, I'd get car insurance. <laughs> yeah. And I'd get health insurance. I don't need health insurance. I'm Canadian and Canada is paid for. I was like, right. But down here, you make sure I'm an independent contractor so I don't get health insurance at all and I have to pay for everything myself. So awkward conversations like that. But then he'd just get up and leave the table. So, Or he'd say, come with me right away. And while he said that, he'd be wearing cutoff shorts with like pockets with like stripper stars on the, whatever, some weird outfit, right? Uh -huh. Boots. Come upstairs right away, get a bucket. Okay, as so you trudge up to the roof and then he'd walk over and there'd be ants are coming up the side of the building and going down the other side onto the roof and into a, pl a crack in the roof, right? Where are they going? You know, I'm not kidding. So shit like that. You're like, I don't know, Dan, they're going somewhere. Why aren't these exterminated? This is New Orleans, man. There's going to be ants in a mansion, probably. Yeah. Like strange stuff. So you never knew. And then you'd think, I'm on the shit list. I got yelled at. It's going to be a terrible day. But then you'd walk up front and the band would already be there. And they'd be impressive people like Robbie Robertson or something real cool. And instead of either humiliating you, he might shine and talk on and on about your talents, which were true, like edits you'd done recently, things that really impressed him about you and, and make you shine in front of somebody that really mattered. So you'd feel really good and then forgive him for being weird on the roof about the ants, you know? So it was always up and down. Hmm. And that's where conflict arose for me. When I look back at Dan now, all I see is a guy who was real smart, real talented, real rich, had no idea what to do with it, abused people that actually really cared about him, but ultimately shared his knowledge with me unimpeded. He would always tell me how to do, how to get the sound, what to listen for. But later he might like throw a DAT machine at me. So it was like a trade-off. Oh, literally throw a DAT machine at you. Oh yeah. You know, if something didn't work. Wow. Um, so our pencils get thrown at your pens. Okay. Little stuff. But so I guess people would call that abusive, 
I didn't think it was that abusive. I thought that was like tough love, just like what I was used to growing up in, just uh-huh. like what I thought life was. Guys can act like dicks, and so can women. And you just got to be cool. And if it gets to a point where it's too much, you leave. Hmm. Remember, I was not a young mother that was single with two kids that had to keep my job at the grocery store or my kids go hungry. I was a young, single, childless woman who could walk out of that studio if I wasn't going to, you know what I mean? Like I, women get terribly abused in the world because they're trapped. I wasn't trapped. I had, I could leave anytime I wanted and go find something else to do with my life. So I figured they're abusive shit. If you even want to call it that, how was that any worse than the way that a lot of people behave in the world? Yeah. And then if you wanted to subject down, down to women, but the most humiliating, devastating things that happened to me in the studio happened from women, not men. Hmm. And that is where the Me Too movement kind of, for me, dried up. Abuse of subordinates is just people who don't deserve the power that they've received abuse their subordinates. People that do deserve it do not abuse their subordinates. And it's not gender-based. just happens to be that there's more men who are given positions of power that they probably didn't deserve. Eventually, you would leave and strike out on your own. Can you talk to me about your time with Sheryl Crow? And I'm aware of, you know, kind of your entry into her world where you started kind of, we'll call it entry level. But eventually, because of your your abilities, she saw that and was like, oh, okay, I guess I'm going to, I'm going to keep her around. <laughs> keep, yeah. I'm going to keep you around. Actually, I, I came in at, at full swing because I left at, you know, after Emmy's record was finished and thought, okay, that's it. My career's over. I quit my job. Emmy's record's done. I don't have any work lined up because I don't have a name for myself. And I'm going to have to go do something else with my life because I can't do this anymore. Like I've put so much effort into it and it all ended with me having to quit because I couldn't stand it anymore. I couldn't stand being yelled at or having stupid, mean stuff said to me because I don't say stupid, mean stuff to other people. You know, because Dan could say some shit. He could say some stuff that was really like unkind. And, you know, I I had a threshold and he went over it. He went over the threshold, so I quit. But then two months later, the studio manager, Karen Brady, who remains my best friend, she called and said, Cheryl Crow had booked this time. There was nobody to replace you. You were supposed to be here. You see, because I was still... I was chief engineer, but if a session showed up and brought their own engineer, then I have to second. That was what part of my fight with Dan about is I don't want a second anymore. If I got to stay a second and only get to engineer when it's you or Malcolm or Mark, which is cool, but I don't want a second anymore. I'm done. I'm past it. So you either hire a second engineer or an assistant so that every session that comes through, I'm not demoted back down to second engineer. I'd rather just go independent. And just see if I can be an engineer. And Dan just wasn't having that. So he would not hire a replacement for me, right? So when I quit, there's nobody that knows the room. (laughs) This is a room that was built by a bunch of guys and me. Like, it's not a standard studio setup. It's in a mansion. Nobody's going to know at all how it works. So I quit. And that was it. So they had to find somebody and try to train him. And it was a disaster. And then Cheryl Crow had time booked two months later. And she showed up with Bill Battrell. And whatever the assistant was that they had found was not working out because she expected it to be kind of a Lanois and Rice. You know what I mean? Like have that. But instead it was just... Anyway, they had a big fight. I guess I wasn't around for any of that. And he quit and left. And the manager called me, Karen, and said, please come down and just set up Cheryl Crow just tonight. And I did. And I told him I needed to have like $140 in cash. I did my full setup, like a full cool, took, you know, several hours while they were writing. But by the end of the night, we were tracking to 24 tracking and uh, we caught home 
And so it got magical right away for her once I arrived. And it stayed magical for her for several years and then it stopped being magical. The the one thing I caught out of Andrew's interview with you was that they were playing that song and she kind of offhandedly said, well, I hope you were running a DAT. And you said, no, I was multi-tracking. Yeah. Yeah. That's when, that's when she and I had our first kind of like, there was a testing there because I did. She, she said it and she said it in a, in a, in an offhanded kind of patronizing way, which right away pissed me off. Cause I was still angry about the thing with Dan. I was still like, I've had it with rich people who are doing amazing stuff, being mad at me, like, and being nasty. Yeah. So I said, I've been rolling a dad. I've been rolling tape. I got 12 rolls of tape sitting over there from all day long, all fucking night long. And of course that shocked her and she didn't say anything right away. But then after that take ended, she came over and I thought she was going to give me some shit. So she looked over the console because the tape machine was behind the console and she looked at it and then she just started laughing or whatever it was, she was happy. And she's even like, I didn't authorize that. I'm not going to pay for all that tape. And I was like, I don't it doesn't matter to me. I'm just here to record you. That's all. What else am I going to do over here? Right. This is what I do over here. You do your thing over here. I do my thing over here. And ever since that very first 12 or 13 sentences that were exchanged, we knew we were a couple of Midwestern girls that both had trash talking and that I wasn't going to kowtow to her. I didn't give a shit about her. She's, I didn't even know what song was her big hit song. I could have cared less. I didn't listen to what I considered pop radio at the time. I didn't know if she was good or bad. I just knew that she was small and she was cute and uh, I was supposed to record her. What are the the takeaways from your time with her, good, bad, or otherwise? Well, I guess they're all good because when you think about how things sound, how certain things happen and, and you captured a moment in time that's so extraordinary that for me becomes a perfect time capsule, an exact time capsule. I don't have a better word for it, for that moment in your whole emotional life. And those are then embedded in this in this. CD or, you know, a download now, a record. There's a lot of them for Cheryl. Like a lot of those songs aren't just songs that came out really good. They're songs that embody very, very, very specific points in my life that are super important to me. So I'm grateful for that. We were young women together. We were young, childless, single women together, right? The difference was she was a super talented rock star millionaire and I wasn't, but that doesn't make me less than her. That made me not a rock star and not a millionaire but not less talented. And I knew it. And I knew I had something to give. And she knew I had something to give. In hindsight, shame on her for not giving me a fucking point on all of that business because that's bullshit. But at the time, that wasn't what I was thinking about. What I was thinking about is here we are, two girls from the Midwest in this room and we're kicking ass. All I wanted to do was record her as best I could, make her sound like she was telling me she sounded in her head. Mm-hmm. Therefore, for a while, I could hear her head because she liked me because she said, yeah, that's exactly what I'm hearing. So we had a connection where what she described I could hear and not just like mimic it. I think I could get in her head and really hear where she needed to be. And I did that. But it's hard to be around famous people. I don't like it. You have talked about, and I and I would agree with this, you talked about how all of you working on these records for her Everybody involved, a few people obviously financially benefited from that and several didn't. And I'm kind of paraphrasing what, you, what you've talked about, but essentially you've talked about a profit sharing type thing, how everybody in that situation could have been in a much better position now today, but that's not what happened. And, and that's not what typically happens, but I'm kind of fascinated by that even as a concept because you clearly played a great part 
in the sound of those records. So I mean, yeah, and, and I'll preface my my thoughts on that not by saying like like all hundred people, like everybody in the press department too, but everybody who physically was a part of the making of the record and of the songwriting, the people who actually touched the music should all benefit. Now, the people who go out and market it, I guess they should benefit too, but I can only really think about the pod of people in yeah. terms of that who were part of that. I mean, and that would include like the production manager at the manager's office who was doing all the running around, like just because they're not in the studio every day, they were still so integral, the go-to person, the point person, like that. Yeah, it's about 15 people on a big record, if you think about it. Yeah. It's not that many. That's what I'm thinking about, like the, the immediate group in the studio and maybe a couple peripheral people. When I heard you say that, I was like, that's a brilliant idea. And it would really motivate everybody to want to kick ass even more. But that's not what happened. No, and I don't think it ever will because that's, of course, a fantasy. That's not how wealth and capitalism and money work. And that is not how need-based creatures, which are artists, operate primally. Like, like an artist to me is a need-based creature. They need to share. They need to be seen. They need to get attention. Mm-hmm. They need to be the person who we can hang our emotions on. And we expect them to deliver for us and to be the one who gets publicly shamed if it sucks or adulated if it's amazing, because none of us are doing that. We want somebody else to do it for us. And these are the people that are able to do that, but they come with need and their need is great. And need is a also usually means selfishness. And I don't mean that in a bad way, but selfishness also doesn't usually say, let me share my wealth. Like Jane Goodall, if she'd have been in there, she'd have been like, Everybody in here is getting some money. Think about it. Do you know what I mean? She wouldn't think, I want to have several, many millions while everybody else gets a couple thousand. Mm. Certainly her psyche, her soul, even as a famous biologist, she would have seen sharing for the group. I don't know. That's not a great example, but that's all I can think of is there's Mm. other very famous minds that would share, but artists aren't usually those ones. Out of that situation, there's a couple people that we know in common, Jeff Trott, Love him. Chad Blake. <laughs> uh, yeah. Uh, Love I, him more. <laughs> yeah, I, I know. I know. Chad. His, Sorry, Jeff. <laughs> but both are great, great people. Very talented people as well. Chad, Chad is just a very inspirational person to me on many levels. They're so huge. Without those guys and Tim Smith, who was around a lot when I was working with Cheryl, they bolstered me so much. They were so talented, but they also got abused too. So it wasn't like Uh, You know, like, it's like all of us were kind of in this thing together Mm. and um, they were brilliant. They are brilliant. Chad in particular took me under his wing and his kindness was biblical, man. I mean, without him, I really probably wouldn't still be doing it. He gave me just so many, even his off the cuff compliments. I was like, oh, (laughs) Chad said, Chad said, you know, truly. I mean, and then his, his failures, the times that I saw him fail in a studio in a mix and how the artist, you know, behaved. And because, you know, at that point, I would see Chad working on with other things and, you know, and how he corrected that stuff and how he sat down and was like, I don't hear that. Do you hear that? And I'd be like, yeah, maybe, maybe I do. I don't know. You know, so just, you know, all that. But yeah, he was, but he was also older than me. And he had a like a house in Los Angeles, which was real cool. And it felt just real safe. And so when I was in LA, if I wasn't in a hotel, I could go hang out with Chad on a day off when Otherwise, I'd just be stuck in a hotel by myself. Yeah. He's a great, great person. I, I really, uh, really admire him on, on multiple levels. Fast forwarding a bit, because unlike Andrew, I don't go for four hours. Yeah, I know. <laughs> 
couple things in your in your time now since Cheryl Crow, you have gone on to work with a lot of different artists and been very successful. You know, at least from a recognition standpoint of Grammy wins, Grammy nominations, and continued work as well. But you also have a family, and you were living in New Orleans, and I believe it was Hurricane Katrina where you lost your home, and that was around 2005. So. So your son was born a year before my son. So you, your son was very young then. Yeah, and you he were was living seven in New months Orleans, old. And uh, y- you all lost your house. I'm sure that was a devastating time. It was. And uh, yeah, I mean, it was, it was catastrophic. It was all those things. I, um, it was also so catastrophic that it's kind of hard to even quantify because so many people lost. I mean, the whole city, you know, so you're like, yeah, me too. <laughs> it, it didn't, like if a lightning bolt struck my house and burned it down and I'm the only one on the block, I almost would feel that as more of a loss because why me? This was so wide and vast that the loss of it didn't hit me till a lo- many years later. Plus I had a brand new baby. Mm. So it's hard to feel. I lost my stuff and I lost my home. and But I was also, I, I guess young motherhood trumped all of that. And we can say that now. We can freely say Trump anytime we want. Um, it trumped, you know, the, the loss because I had a, yeah, an infant that was nursing. So yeah, the house is underwater. Holy crap. I'm nearly 40 and I'm nursing a baby. How did this happen? I mean, like what brought this down the pike? So losing, I had a bunch of gear that I lost, which was not insured. So that was devastating. Lost my house, lost all my stuff, but my baby was fine. And I had a credit card and I used Lexus. So I drove out of there and other people died. It's just, it was humbling more than devastating. Yeah, it's and I would almost equate it to when you talk to people now and people say, hey, man, you know, how are you doing? How have you fared during this whole COVID thing? And I'm like, you know what? I'm not going to say shit because I've been yeah. just fine while others have been absolutely devastated. Yeah, exactly. I um, I mean, my career didn't exactly flourish during this last year, but I'm still kicking around, getting some pay gigs. I managed to crash hard enough to be able to get on the pandemic unemployment insurance, which is awesome. It's not that much, but it pays for groceries. I'm not yeah. proud. I need grocery money. Hell yeah. 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 This, this business is tricky because I never made a lot of money. I just made a lot of cool records that made other people a lot of money. And then I made a lot of cool records that didn't make anybody any money. I didn't play that game very well either. And that's to my, it's my fault and also to my great disadvantage. I'm not a, I could have been a brilliant businesswoman too, mm-hmm. except it bores the shit out of me and I'm not interested. I'm interested in making up fantasies in my head that I've now realized I can write as fiction and write a fiction book because that's all I really want to do is hang out in the sun and fantasize about shit and listen to music. I don't want to think about business or social media or self-promotion. And so I failed at that. I failed to build a machine around myself that could carry my talent so that I could be a record-making machine like the great Dave Cobb. So I'd have my own studio and my sound and my band and become a monster of awesomeness. I know how to do one thing really good, and that's how to record music and mix it. Well, I don't, I don't know if you ever saw The Language of Music with Tom Dowd, but at the end of that movie, Tom Dowd makes it very clear that he pretty much has done what you are talking about. He didn't spend his time being the best business person. He just made great records. And while he didn't die broke, he didn't exactly- He didn't die rich, right. He didn't die rich either. So I, I don't think that's a, an uncommon thing. It just depends on, on what you'd need music for. I'll go back to the thing where every time my favorite part would come, you know, I could count on it. I could count on that moment. So music to me 
it's a commerce. It's an engine for commerce. I get that. It's a saleable product. It's a way that people make a living. But the truth of music to me is like sacred, I guess. And so I can get real caught up in the inability to treat it as a commercial product. And I'm also just, maybe I'd like to think I'd have been a great businesswoman because I am not. And I can say it's because I never applied myself. And that may be true, or it may just be that I don't have that in me. Young people out there who are listening, if you want to be great at this, you've got to be great at the business side too. Otherwise, you will have, have recognition, but you won't really make a living. That's, that's for sure. It, you don't get to be one or the other. You have to be both. So I wish I had done better with that. After uh, the devastation in New Orleans, you would go to, on to live in Nashville for a period of time and eventually make your way into Fairhope, Alabama. Is that correct? Yes. I, um, we went up to Nashville for five years after the flood, and it was great. Nashville, obviously, you know, I, I got some work right away, and I kept pretty busy in Nashville, but there were complications with childcare and just knowing that I was having to leave my child all the time with, like, nannies. That's what everybody did. Everybody had a nanny, and I was just like, you know, this is bullshit. I want my kid with me, or I want him with his grandma. I don't mm. want him with a 22-year-old nanny who got pulled over for speeding with my kid in her car. <laughs> and there was a, you know, there was obviously a little bit of misogynism in Nashville. I didn't really care about that, but I found it, I was a little raw for Nashville, I think. And uh, my sound was a little raw too. So we came back, me and my husband came back down here. And then not long after that, I set up my mix room at home where I sit right now. And I love it. But then I ran into those crazy PV brothers, Jake and Luke PV in Mobile, who that's a whole nother podcast. That's what we get. I know we get, we might have to do a part two at some point. Cause that's the best part of the story is all of a sudden Jake and Luke PV, mostly Luke dropping into my life. Just it's, it goes on to this very minute. I mean, without the PV boys right now, I financially would not be able to survive. They don't give me money, but we are able to set up a nice, and I'm not part of their studio per se, but I gave of myself of them to get mobile, like legitimize the reality of music being made there. And they wanted to build a studio and I helped them make sure that they got that done. And we became great friends and and through them, you know, I've, I've been able to stabilize myself a little bit and just have a reason to believe in magic again. You know, if you're willing to come back and talk about that at great length, I'd be happy to have you back. I would love to. If you get a good response to this, if people are interested, let's do one where we just talk about Mobile and the Peavies. That sounds good. Because they are a fascinating story all by themselves. They're better than Cheryl Crow. The the name of their of their studio, Dolphin, spelled D-A-U-P-H-I-N, Dolphin Street Productions. Yes. A, a dolphin is the eldest son of the King of France. Yes, that's right. Because Mobile was formed as like a French territory, you know, like near the same time as New Orleans. So there's a lot of the Bienville and Dauphin. And so there's, um yeah, it's not like Dolphin. It's dolphin is a historical figure. You know more than I do. I had to look it up. I was like, am I spelling that right? What is that? Yeah, he was he was a, 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 one of the French, associated with the French that actually colonized the bay. They were the first people on Mobile Bay. Well, they weren't the first. The ind- indigenous people were, of course. Sorry, indigenous people. Well, we're, we are at a time, but, and, I, and I will conclude our conversation just by asking, you know, I usually ask, you know, where can people find out more about you? And I know you have a website, which we will put in the show notes for, for the audience, but do you actively try to promote yourself at all? When something cool happens, like the NPR World Cafe, uh-huh. I put it on Facebook and Instagram, but then I might not be on Instagram again for a month. Yeah, there, There's nothing against it. 
It's just that my mind, okay, here's the truth. For the past two and a half years, for one thing, I don't like social media, but more importantly, I did start writing a, a novel and it, outside of making records, is my everything. And I pour every ounce of energy I have into it. Every thought that I could ever thunk goes in my book and editing it takes every spare moment of time, even time that would take two minutes to look at Instagram and think, I don't care what other people are doing. I only care about my imagination. I am so selfish. It's devastating. <laughs> well, I will gladly read the book when it, when it is done. Well, good. It's uh, a love story. And it takes place in 1995 in the city of New Orleans over the course of one month. Sign me up. That's, that sounds good. <laughs> but do you want to, you can report, you can, you're welcome to promote me on my behalf if you like, Matt. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah, I'm a fan of your work and, and, I, and I, love, I love how the records that you've worked on sound. There, I, I could say a million great things about it, but I will say this. I really sincerely appreciate you coming on and talking with me. I've long wanted to have you on. Like I said, I'm a fan of your work, so it's a pleasure to have you on. It's a pleasure to speak with you. Thank you very much. Thanks for having me. All right. You take care. Our friends over at Cali Audio have just introduced the brand new LP UNF system, which is meant to give you everything you need from a studio monitor in a package that you can basically set up anywhere. And the system is specifically designed for your desk. So no matter how else you're using your desk, reflections from the drivers to the desk to your ears are accounted for giving you a perfectly clear picture of your mix that you can rely on to translate well. Whether you're putting them on stands behind your desk, on a desk away from walls, on a desk against a wall, on a desk on speaker stands away from the walls, there's a number of configurations and they have settings on the back to accommodate all of that and more. And if price is a concern, never fear. They're priced at $299. That's right, pretty affordable. Head on over to caliaudio.com and check out the new LP UNF. Trina Shoemaker here on the Working Class Audio Podcast. Thanks so much for being here with me today. If you like the show, please head over to iTunes and leave a positive review. That's all for me today. Want to thank the crew. That includes Anne-Marie Plo on the editing, Cliff Truesdale on the Working Class Audio theme song, and Mr. Chuck Smith with his lovely voice there at the top of the show. Connect with me on LinkedIn. And until next time, take care. Hey, I know many of you are aware of this, but for those of you that aren't aware, Working Class Audio sponsors the forum over at gearspace.com called Audio Life. And quite simply put, it's a place where audio professionals can go to talk with other audio professionals about things other than audio gear, including life hacks, work-life balance, health and hearing loss. You know, if you want to talk with other audio professionals who can identify with what your lifestyle is like, and how it relates to things going on in the world outside of audio, this is a great place to go and check out. So head on over to gearspace.com, check out Audio Life, many of the same topics that we discuss here on the show on gearspace.com. So check that out.